As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. And from The Square Ball is Michael Normanson. Hello. And from The Athletic, here's Phil Hay. Hello. You can subscribe right now with a 33% discount on the full price of a sub for The Athletic via theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's where you'll find all Phil's writings. Phil, I'm not going to give you a chance to sell a particular article this week because I want to flag one up because we're going to talk about it today, about Leeds being in transition, the sort of state that we're in. Um, What prompted that? A few things, really. It started out as a piece about Liam Cooper, who, as people who listen to the podcast will know, I kind of feel is not the greatest centre-back in the history of the world, but is slightly underappreciated at Leeds between performances and, and I think, general general influence. But it did get me thinking about the fact that this season and these 10 games so far have made it feel like the club are between phases, really between phases in terms of some of the players and the, and the squad potentially between phases when it comes to the head coach, you know, who knows whether Bielsa will, will extend his contract again next summer. Um, between phases, I think, in the boardroom as well, I think it's highly likely that we will see um, more, uh, you know, shares continuing to transfer from Radrazani to, to 49ers enterprises. And it does feel a little bit like that. I mean, a lot of people in the summer felt that more needed to be done with the squad. I kind of felt that they had enough to to stay up this season, enough to, to get a third season in the Premier League. But we're probably all coming around to the point of view that next summer there is going to have to be a bigger push at Leeds. And and actually, um, Radrazani was talking at the, the Lisbon Web Summit and other of these summits that seem to come around fairly regularly these days, business gatherings, and did kind of hint in there. He was talking about Leeds becoming a top six club, which doesn't seem, you know, doesn't feel like the time to be talking about that particularly. But he did kind of hint at the fact that, you know, this summer coming would have to be bigger and then the summer, summer behind them. And I, I would agree with that. And that is kind of what the, the article is getting at. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for that. And we will get into that because I guess it's at the root of where Leeds are at the minute. And that is off the back of this 2-1 victory at Carrow Road at Norwich. I think we all predicted a win, didn't we, last week in among your uh, trip to Harry Potter world, which was the better away trip? Well, I was going to say Harry Potter world on the basis that we got there on time and we got home on time as well. The, the trains back were a, a really, really good insight actually, into how, how... No Hogwarts Express uh, running to Norwich? No. There was barely a East Anglian Express running to Ely, but we we did make it back at midnight, which is about six hours after we got on the train in Norwich. I mean, I, I always say this, I can never moan because I, I'm paid to be there and, and paid to be to travelling and everything else, but it does give you a great insight into how poorly served football supporters are by the rail network and also how few allowances the network seems to make for the fact that there are football games on. There's also like zero common sense. We we pulled into Ely and missed the train by about two minutes. And then we got to Peterborough about an hour and a half later, missed the, another train by about four minutes. And nobody seemed to be bright enough to phone ahead and say, you've got about 100 Leeds fans on this train. Just hold that train for a few minutes. Otherwise, they're all stuck with you at your station. <laughs> well, well, that's that's it. I mean, you could imagine the train driver hearing that the, the 100 Leeds fans about to get on his train and thinking, right, I'll just quietly set off now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it was a, a mess. Although, has to be said, it wasn't just a mess where we were. It was a mess right across the country. I don't really know what was going on on Sunday, but it was worth the effort and it was a big result. It was a big result, wasn't it? It felt like a, a very necessary win. I think there was no option but to win that game. Where does it stand in terms of Leeds' season, do you think? Is it a springboard now to build on? We look ahead to Sunday 
and Leicester. We'll do that at the back end of the show as we preview that. But it feels to me a little bit like Leeds United are gradually dragging themselves up out of the mud at the minute, getting all the injured players back and trying to get these points on the board. One thing I've been reminded of this week is that it's not a great division, particularly sort of mid-table downwards. There's a lot of clubs all just sort of milling around a similar points total. The one thing you wanted to know on Saturday, uh, on Sunday, sorry, was that Leeds are a better side than Norwich, which I think we all believed and we all knew deep down. But you discovered that particularly in the second half. The first half I thought was quite quite scary. I was desperately trying to avoid Halloween puns down at Carroll Road, but it's very rare. And even this season, it hasn't been, it's been unusual really to see Leeds playing with so little self-assurance and confidence. There was so much anxiety in the football and the passing and, and what they were doing that it, it felt like you were watching somebody else's team. And the goals made a huge difference to that. I thought you could you could feel a surge of confidence even though Norwich equalised so quickly uh, after the first goal from Rafinha. But it was interesting watching Norwich in the second half because two moments in particular I thought jumped out. The one where Max Ahrens was trying to take a throw-in from the far side as we were sitting, which is by the Leeds fans. And not a single Norwich player was going to him to get the ball. I could hear journalists in the press box saying, somebody go to take the ball. You know, he's, he's standing there trying to throw it in and nobody wants it. And then you had that moment in at the very end of injury time where Tyler Roberts committed a foul on halfway and Krul, Norwich have been going fairly long for a lot of the game. Krul has this opportunity to bang the ball into the box, which is the only thing to do on 95 minutes and takes the free kick shot. And you could feel the crowd getting very impatient you could feel them, you know, you could feel them losing faith, I think. I mean, th- there seems to be a lot of dissent in Norwich about this idea. And I think it was said by Jamie O'Hara on TalkSport that the Premier League doesn't want Norwich. You know, it shouldn't be in the Premier League. And everybody should resist that idea. And I can understand the, the resentment about it because English football has never been a franchise system. It should never be a franchise system. You get promoted on merit. But I don't think anybody in Norwich can argue with the, the opinion that they're a poor addition to the Premier League. Whatever their plan is, it's a million miles away from, from working. And, and I strongly get the suspicion that they're going to end up sacking Farke long after this season is dead for them and they're going down again. And I guess the situation with him at the moment is, is he getting the most out of the squad? And it's not a great squad, but I don't think he is. Whereas with Bielsa, he's not getting the most out of his squad either, but you do feel like it is coming or you feel like it could come again. And you also have the proof in this league that he knows how to get the best out of, his, out of this squad in this division. And I thought there was a pretty clear demarcation between the side at the bottom of the table and the side who were third bottom as the day started. And I think, personally, I came away feeling that without it being a great performance and and again, another game where you you could really pick out a lot of room for improvement, you did get the sense, A, that Leeds are still fighting for it, B, that they're still with Bielsa and C, that they do, in areas, have enough quality to make sure they're okay this season. I don't think we'll get away with uh, Michael's Daniel Farker impression on this show. We have to be a little bit more grown up for the athletic, don't we? But, um, all, no, that... I, but I, all I would say is I think you might be moving on from the <laughs> Farker impressions at some point soon at this rate. Get it in while we can. Yes. Well, I want to talk about Farker actually and his assertion that Norwich deserved to win that game. That felt bordering on delusional. It did by the end of the game. Possibly not by the end of the first half. You know, I, I tweeted at the end of the first half and said it, it that was a little all over the place. You had Harrison up front to begin with. He went to the left, it seemed to me, because James was struggling to contain Norwich down his side of the pitch. James went up front. He had that chance that was cleared off the line, but it wasn't clicking. And I, I kept looking at the players moving around and thinking that the one thing it was saying to you was that they need Patrick Bamford back. They need Bamford. I was just, I was just writing down those words, how much a lead's missing Patrick Bamford, but you're answering it, so go on then. Yeah, and I don't even think it's just the goal scoring. I think it's partly what he does when it comes to the the press up front, but also the organisation that seems to come from having him as the tip of the team. I I think it is, I think it is better. I think it it kind of eradicates any need for experimentation, which is what it felt like we were seeing on Sunday. And I tweeted very early in the game saying, Rafinha down the right is the ball. I mean, that, that is, that is where this is going to come from. It was no surprise at all when, when it was him who scored and scored in, in the manner that he did. I mean, there was some nice work from Stroik and, and James in the build-up to it, but it was amazing control and, and great footwork. And I, I was writing after the Southampton game about him because he came back from Brazil and he made it back in time, but he didn't play and, and he wasn't on the bench. And I, I was saying in, in the piece afterwards that this is a period where you really, really need your most influential players. And actually, I think if we're being brutally honest, this is a period where they need Rafinha 
more than anybody else because he is the one. I know Rodrigo's had a couple of goals. He, he's had you know bits, bits and pieces in, in the games where he's played well. But Rafinha is the player who looks like looks like doing something every time he gets on the ball. And there was no doubt at all that he was part of the difference. Are we in danger of reverting back to the McCormack Snodgrass years of just give it to the best player and hope something clicks? But isn't that how, how all football teams work? I don't think it's how we've worked for the past few years, though. I think that's the it, thing. It, feel, it does. I know we've relied on we did rely on Pablo an awful lot in the Championship to unlock things, and certainly in the the later stages of that campaign. But it does feel like at the moment it's Rafinha or nothing, which is I do find a bit worrying. People like. Jack Harrison and Click, who used to contribute with goals, it doesn't seem like their form is anything like up to scratch this season so far. If you think back to Grayson's first season in the Championship, it was never a case of keep calm and give it to Snodgrass. And I did actually use that phrase in Monday's piece, keep calm and give it to Rafinha, because it felt like that in, in the first half. Less so in the second, I have to say, I thought that I thought Leeds controlled that far better and, and looked in far less trouble when, when Norwich came forward. Not that Norwich were creating a, a huge amount. But that first season with Grayson, it wasn't a case of Snodgrass or bust. The key comparison is that when it got to that point, when it felt like it had to be Snodgrass who was doing it, you were talking about a team who were out of form and a team who weren't particularly dominant in the league and a team who weren't going for the playoffs or going for a a high-ranking position, which is where Leeds are at the moment. And I I don't actually think that you can can kind of criticise the fact that they are relying on, on big players. I think that happens inevitably when you do lose your form. By no stretch are they, they a one-man team, but they are relying heavily on one player at the moment, particularly in going forward, you know, when it comes to creativity and, and goals. But I don't think anybody would think any less of Bielsa for having a little bit of pragmatism from time to time and from saying in, in circumstances like this, we do need to rely on this guy. You know, this guy does need to be in the team. He's, he is having a big influence at the moment. And when it comes to gathering some impetus and, and gaining some momentum, why not rest on him? Because he is developing into a world-class player. We'll talk more about Rafinha in the second part of the show, a little bit more in depth. I'd like to get your thoughts on, on something we kind of touched on there, which is the anxiety that seems to have got into Leeds United's game in the early part of this season and why they are not maybe not misfiring, but not quite firing on all cylinders yet. You'll have seen the quotes from Stuart Dallas last week talking about the bereavement that he's had and, and also um, about about COVID and it does remind you that players have things going on in the background but are expected to continue to to perform and, and to perform in public and and just you know you, you're saying at the beginning you don't want to ask me about specific pieces but if you're listening Friday morning we've got a piece on today about the Rehubka night at Ellen Road that's 10 years on this week and he became a figure of fun after that and a you know a target of, of ridicule and, and for me as, as much as, as anybody else but over the years, I've kind of started to see it differently and to think more about the sort of psychological impact and, and the trauma of what, it, what was you know, a complete professional disaster, that, and how it must affect you and how difficult it must be to deal with. And, and likewise for somebody like Dallas, he has that going on in the background. And I think it's fair to say that there might well be a correlation between that and, and the way he's playing. With somebody like Harrison, he just looks very out of form at the moment. And I, I can't explain why that is. I don't think Bielsa can explain why that is. Bielsa just said the other week, I can't praise his performances, but I do think he will will shine again. The anxiety at Norwich, I've no doubt at all, was because both sides realised what potentially what the consequences of that day were going to be. I felt that Norwich started that feeling like it was a little bit of a free hit for them because Leeds were out of form, potentially beatable. They seemed to hook on to the crowd to begin with and, and played relatively well, I felt, you know, to, to begin with. It being a good game. It was very, very low quality, but they were they were on top in, in little spells. But it completely shifted by the end because Leeds had the win in the bag. The crowd was starting to think to themselves, we are actually going down here, but it's not even November yet. And we are borderline relegated. You know, it's going to be very, very difficult to get out of this. So that explains why I think there was a lot of tension. And Bielsa did say that afterwards. He just said, you know, the thought of making a mistake or poor results does start to get into your head. And it gets into your head more when you've had a few and, and when you know that the form's not great and you know that there's been been criticism of you. And the players under him are not used to this. You know, they're they're not used to this situation. And I don't know how much really those that were here before him can draw on the experience of bad times under Christensen, bad times under Heckenbottom or or, or for a player like Cooper or even Dallas, you know, going back further than that. Because those were horrendous periods where Leeds were, you know, the the crowd, crowd were at them. Everybody was at them. A lot of criticism all the time. And you could call it character building. Um, But, I don't know whether they'll have learned a huge amount during that period, apart from that it is better as a footballer to play well and to be in a good team. 
Now, we're recording on Thursday morning. We saw the results midweek, um, a full round of EFL fixtures. And there's this weird subset of clubs now starting to form. Of you know, it's like Bournemouth are atop of the championship. You've got Fulham who stuck seven past Blackburn and no sign of Ian Pervada there, which I guess is a separate discussion. Uh, but you also look at West Brom who are there in, in third place at the top of the championship and you'd probably bracket Norwich with those as well. There's almost this kind of in-between division of clubs forming, isn't there? And I wonder what that says about the state of both the Premier League and the EFL. But it definitely is, um, provided that when you go down, you still have a fairly tight framework. Sheffield United are the kind of outlier in that in that they are quite a way back from um, certainly the top of the, the division and a little distance from the playoffs as well, mid-table at the moment. You see, I, I think one of the things that you could say about Carroll Road was that nothing in what was going on at Norwich made you think that there was an upside to being a yo-yo club, particularly. I mean, they released their accounts last week for the uh, for the, the season they came the last season they came up from the championship, and COVID obviously had an impact on TV money and and other things. But they had an operating loss of close to thirty million pounds, and it was turned into a profit by selling Wendia. But that is the nature of the championship; it is a loss-making league. And nobody wants to go back there. I mean, I, I was kind of saying like the idea of hell for the board that leads is another set of championship accounts. They just they just don't want to do it. But it is the case that if you go down with Premier League funds, you can compete more strongly than other clubs if you're set up to do that. So Bournemouth clearly are. West Brom and Fulham are in, in very good shape. Sheffield United, obviously, slightly further towards the, the opposite extreme. But I think what it shows you is that more than ever, you're getting divisions within divisions now. I mean, there is a definite division at the top of the Premier League, which excludes virtually every team bar three or four. There is a division at the bottom of it, which is far bigger. Um, and I think a lot of clubs kind of fall into that category of could get sucked into trouble. Although weirdly this season, it does look as if you're going to have a division of one at the very bottom of it, which which is Norwich. But likewise in the Championship, the team's going for the playoffs, but there is a little group of clubs who think that they should be finishing in, in the top two. And there's nothing about the championship, despite the strong clubs, um, you know, the, the fact that the relegated clubs are, are stronger and near the top of it. And there's nothing about the championship that makes me think that Leeds want to go anywhere near it ever again. In terms of the Premier League, we're starting to see that little bit of managerial churn now, aren't we? Obviously, Conte's going in at Spurs to replace um, Nuno and uh, Newcastle are desperately trying to recruit someone, anyone. Does it lend weight to the idea of you've got to sit tight on things in this division? Because, you know, we've got a plan, uh, we've got a brilliant coach. And sometimes we just need to give it time to to kick back into life. That's been the attitude of the club and the attitude of the board. There's been no scrutiny of Bielsa's performance. And this none of this means that he gets a free pass or that he, he gets to trail through endlessly poor results. But they have huge amounts of faith in, in him, as they should. They have a lot of faith in the players, which in my opinion, they, they should as well. And the feeling is that when the injuries ease and when players recover form, which you know individual players, which they should, then they will be better and they will be more competitive and they should have it in them to, to finish in a steady position, which means there's a third season in the Premier League coming. Radrazani was asked about Bielsa again at this Lisbon Web Summit and said, you know, we support him unconditionally, which I think is true. I don't doubt that at all, though you wouldn't expect him to say anything different. But I would have been amazed if that hadn't been the, the view of him. What difference, say, a defeat at Carroll Road would have made is an interesting question because there does always come a point at which you have to ask yourself, are we going down here? You know, are we are we on the road to relegation? But I think that is the sort of game that you should be winning. The players know unequivocally that they go there, they have to win it, otherwise they're going to be big questions asked. And it has to be good psychologically for them to have done that, you know, to have gone to a game like that and to have delivered as, as they were supposed to. And you could see him be else at the end of the game. He looked pretty emotionally drained, I thought, at full time. It just took a few minutes to kind of compose himself so all in all a, a, you know a pretty key weekend Just returning to this idea of Leeds being in in transition that we spoke about at the very start of the podcast there is almost a creeping sense for me anyway and, and do you agree uh, I said this on the Square Ball podcast we just need to get to the end of this season almost now and reset again which is it's an awful thing to be saying isn't it 10 games in I want to kind of enjoy it but it almost feels like we can't really relax until we get season 3 secured and is this what life in the Premier League is like? Oh yeah, because season three comes around and then you can't really relax in season three until you know that it's all it's all going swimmingly. And if it starts really well, like it did last season, it's happy days by the end of January. If it starts like it does this season, the chances are that, that this season will be a long way from being wrapped up at the, the point where we get to the, the turn of the year. What I was saying in my piece about Cooper is that I, I think without any doubt there are technically better 
centre-backs at Leeds and centre-backs like Strike, for example, who who will, I suspect, go on to be better players than, than Cooper. But this kind of goes back to something we chatted about a month or so ago, which is that I sort of feel that, that Cooper, I actually think Cooper's been one of the better players this season, I have to be honest. He has made mistakes and there have been, you know, there have been moments that have not been great. But I think if you were comparing his form to general form across the team, it would be hard to rank too many players above him. And I sort of feel that he is fine for where Leeds are, Leeds are at at the moment. And there is this sort of constant urge and rush to move on from him and to get rid of him, despite what he has contributed. And I think his contribution is pretty underappreciated, actually. As a captain, as much as, as anything, I can think of some really poor or ineffective captains over the years. And he's been quite the opposite of that. And I think before Bielsa came, there was this question about whether Leeds were almost unmanageable you know was there any manager who could get a grip of them and yes there was and it was him and it's a bit like that with the captaincy it is a difficult club to captain and it's not an easy job and when Cooper goes somebody will have to inherit that and will have to do as well as as he does but I'm with you I, I think they do need to get to the end of this season I think they can get to the end of this season with what they've they've got and if they do then it's it feels like job done for me but they are going to have to be honest about the fact that every single model needs updating from time to time needs refresh from time to time not every player can go on forever. Bielsa can't go on forever. Radrazani isn't going to go on forever. I think next summer we could see quite a bit of change. I don't know at this stage, it's impossible to say what that will constitute, you know, what, what that will involve. But certainly on the transfer front, I think they are going to have to be more aggressive. Is this a problem we brought on ourselves, do you think? Do you think the, the people running the club should have seen that the squad needed a bit more of a refresh and maybe even if it's not people going straight into the first team, just having some new faces about the place to give a bit of something new to just even if it's just in training or to come off the bench the, the prevailing view and very few people disagree with this in fact I can't find anybody who disagrees with, with this is that they should have brought centre, central mid centre mid and there should have been a central midfielder signed in the summer and that was on the list and, and it didn't happen but somebody asked me this on Twitter should they should or, or it might have been the athletics comment section should they not have done more in the summer and should they not have foreseen the fact that players were, were going to drop out of form Dallas was player of the year last year. Uh, the club finished ninth. Harrison had a good season. Cooper had a good season. I think Ailing had a, a good season. So you're almost making a gut judgment about whether or not these players can do the same again. And it is, I mean, ultimately it comes down to, to Bielsa, but it is. it would have been harsh, I think, for the club to have said, we don't think these players, on a whim, really, you know, we don't think these players can do it in a second season. Maybe they would have been right. It might have been the right call. But I think for the kind of cohesion of the dressing room and the atmosphere of the club, I don't think it would have had a great effect. I I disagree with that. I don't fully agree with that. I don't think it would have been on a whim because all the anxieties in the summer surrounded the idea that if you stand still, you go backwards. And I think if you put a new face, one face into that midfield, it could be transformative. Just that extra bit of competition just to make all the other existing midfielders level up. I don't think it would have been that disruptive. Absolutely. And we'll not go over all ground here, but I think we all agree on that, that there should have been a centre mid and it would have made it would have made a difference. I think what I'm seeing, and I guess it's a different point of discussion, is people thinking that there are players in this squad who should have been replaced. Um, so not only bringing in a new face in midfield, but there should have been replacements for some of the players who are not, not playing well. And I think that would have been a difficult decision to have taken last summer, given how well last season went. Would have been tricky. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's talk Rafinha now then. The undoubted star of this season, 10 games in. World-class, Phil, how good is he? Getting there, getting there rapidly. I never thought I'd ever have the chance, I don't know about ever, but I didn't think it was likely that any time soon I'd have the chance to write about world-class footballer at Leeds. I kind of went through years of you know, 
Capaldi's and Dickinson's and Anthony Elding's and in amongst that some very good players like Snodgrass and and Fabian Delph and others. Um, but the the years of kind of trolling through the AFL make you think that you'll never get to see somebody who is quite as electric as as Rafinha. Quite a few people have asked me if he is the best player Leeds have had since relegation. And I think the answer to that is that technically, yes. I, I don't think they've had a player who has more technical ability than him. He's probably still, actually I don't think there's any probably about it, he's still not at the, the level of influence that somebody like Hernandez had and, and is yet to deliver what, what Hernandez helped to deliver for the club. But you'll have to help me out with this. I mean, going back to the period of the Champions League, I guess that would be where you'd have to look to find somebody as naturally gifted as Rafinha. And I kind of feel, as much as I'm loath to say this because people won't want to, to have a huge discussion about this guy, but I feel like all roads kind of point to Harry Kuehl. Yeah, I think you're right, particularly the um, the left-footedness and the fact that when he picks it up, and I think we've spoken about this before, Michael, haven't we? He's one of those players when you see him pick the ball up and you get that lift, that roar of anticipation in the crowd. You hear it because everybody knows something's going to happen when Rafinha gets the ball. And I, and I do remember when Harry Kuehl broke through before he did all the the bad stuff. That's exactly what it was like with him, that sense of anticipation that this guy's going to make something happen. It's the sense that he's got everything in his game as well because with Kewell, you could you could show him outside and he could cr- he'd cross it in. You could show him inside, but then he'd be able to shoot. He could he could hit a shot nicely with the outside of his foot. There was one against Sheffield Wednesday, quite a famous one. Which no, it was ludicrous. That, goal, goals it, yeah. we can't talk about anymore because of because of the bad things. <laughs> but like when you his showreel is ridiculous when you see some of his goals against Leeds. There was one at home where he, he crashed one in against Aston Villa for about 35 yards as well he could he could do absolutely everything and on, on the defensive side of it as well he was he was quite a diligent runner as well for his for his fullback was cool which I think he's probably overlooked a little bit in the fact that he was he was so good going forward but I think you see that in Rafinha well you see it more so in Rafinha because Bielsa now demands that he he runs endlessly but he's got such a Rafinha has such a desire just all over the pitch it seems that I think that is also something that that really separates him from a lot of other wingers we've had over the years when, when COVID started and the football season stopped and nobody quite knew what to do with themselves, I, I said on Instagram, which I never use or don't use much, um, <clears throat> apart, to, apart from to publicise the book, obviously, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a video every day of a Leeds United goal. And my commitment to it was such that it lasted for about 33 days or something like that. And then I, I just gave up. But it was <laughs> noticeable that every time I posted Kuehl at Sheffield Wednesday or Alan Smith, wherever, there was a general reply of, Good goal, but no thanks. But that cool goal at Sheffield Wednesday is is exactly it. That is just kind of raw, raw, raw and rare talent. They're slightly different in the way that they move. And that if you watch Cool, he, he tends to glide really just cool. He's got that kind of slick, um, velvety motion. Whereas with Rafinha, it's really frenetic, which in a lot of ways makes it even more difficult to defend against him um, because you don't you don't know exactly what he's going to do next. And I have to say, actually, Norwich on Sunday. I thought defended against him pretty well, despite him clearly winning the day against them. I didn't think they did a bad job on him. But Michael's right. When you start to go through his game, there's nothing that that isn't there. I I was asking our stats guys at The Athletic to look at Rodrigo's pressing because I'm quite interested at the moment as to whether Rodrigo presses as well as somebody like Bamford up front. And they came back with various stats which showed that actually it's kind of of on a par actually. There's not a huge amount between it, although we could do with looking at it a bit more in depth. But Rafinha's pressing is actually quite middling, which at least shows that there is something in his game that could get a little bit better because he can play easily with with both feet. He's incredibly quick, creates goals, scores goals, always comes up with something. I think if he's not in the world-class bracket, it feels like he's heading there very, very rapidly. And it's, it's, it's great to have somebody like that on the pitch every week for you to write about and watch. The frenetic style is interesting because I think we, as fans as well, we've probably contrasted with Helder Costa, who... If you had a the main criticism of him was sometimes that he looked just very laid back on the pitch and like languid. He was, yeah, and he was he was sometimes frustrating. Whereas when you see Rafinha, he's like a, a footballing Mike Tyson in that he just flies at people and he's he's in their faces. And when he's running at people, it's quick and it's twisting and turning. And it's he, you can see defenders are in a panic instantly with him. Whereas with Costa, it was always a bit like, well, he can play himself into a game maybe over time, but from the first minute with Rafinha, it seems like he's just out there to, to destroy people. Yeah, Rafinha looks like an absolute nightmare to play against. Oh, yeah. And you think back to your own, even just knocking around, playing five aside. If someone was belting at you with that amount of athleticism and power, and they've constantly got you changing direction, and, and as Bielsa always says, it, he unbalances his opponents. Great word, actually. I mean, Bielsa talks about that a lot when it comes to attacking play. You know, how do we 
and but unbalanced teams. But unbalance is exactly what um, Rafinha does because everybody is suddenly on edge and, and everybody's panicking. And if psychologically, if you're a fullback, that what you were talking about, that little burst of noise from the crowd, and I think it's I think it's quite telling actually as well that you feel that with Gilhard at the moment. Whenever he touches the ball or gets the ball in space, there is that little that little burst of people thinking something's going to happen here, but it's more extreme and more pronounced with Rafinha for obvious reasons. And if you're a fullback, that must get into your head. Even if you've analysed him and you've looked at him and, and as every Premier League fullback will do, prepare yourself in that way for what he's going to do and how he's going to play. That sense of anticipation when he gets on the ball can only make you think the crowd know that he does something when he gets the ball. So this is going to be fun and games. Um, and as I say, I, it was a kind of, kind of paradox on Sunday he he settled the game I felt I thought he made a massive massive difference but Norwich did okay against him they they did better than certain other fullbacks have, have coped with him but he is he is a level above and I think I think it's, you can you can argue as to whether he's a better player than Phillips because it's not just about talent when it comes to that kind of judgment it is also about influence but when it comes to your raw skill set and you you know your, your basic ability the, the level of your talent I think he is, by quite a distance, the best player at Leeds. It's interesting, I think, now to take the temperature of this because we're 10 games into the Premier League season as we as we record this. Going back to the summer when you were off, having had your operation, and we, we pre-recorded the top 10 players that you've seen during your time covering Leeds, which is a span of, what, 16 years mm-hmm. or, or thereabouts now. And Rafinha did make the top 10, probably one of the only recent signings to have done so. We had a lot of... Cooper Dallas, Ailing, etc. Click was in there. He was about was about number seven, I think he was. I think so. Like seven yeah, or eight. around about there. And Hernandez came top of the tree. Ten games on, and it's only ten games. Do you think that's shifted at all? And how important do you think he is to this present day Leeds United side? I think it still goes the way of the discussion about Rafinha and Phillips. There was a, a great stat that somebody posted about the Leeds with Phillips, Leeds without Phillips in the Premier League, and and those stats aren't always wonderfully scientific because obviously they different things going in games and but the picture is so stark minus Phillips in the team versus him in the line in the starting lineup that you can see the influence that he has I think with Rafinha if I again if if we're talking about his ability quite a close run thing between him and, and Hernandez but I actually think Rafinha almost edges it you know there is so much in him and which is no slight on Hernandez at all but when you have been somebody who has been so influential in dragging Leeds out of the EFL for the first time in 16 years. I think that counts very much in, in your favour. And, and I would still, over the last 15 years or so, have Hernandez at number one. But something tells me that Rafinha has the chance to be that player, not only because of how good he is and or how good he could be, but also because of how much money Leeds might make on him further down the line. There's the whole fine wine argument as well with um, Pablo Hernandez in that we caught him, you know, Let's be fair, towards the tail end of his career, because uh, he's now gone back to Spain, playing in the third tier. Could probably have played at a higher level, but you know, there's a there's a love affair there with his hometown club. But we're getting Rafinha on the way up rather than, you know, Hernandez, who was the wrong side, sadly, of, of 30. I mean, it would have been great to get Pete Hernandez into this Leeds team, wouldn't it? There's also the affection, you know, and, and the kind of emotion of, of the relationship with Hernandez, which definitely, definitely sways that. I, I'm still fairly baffled by what went on at Wren in the summer where they sold Rafinha because French football wasn't in a great state financially, although Ren won't particularly given the impression that they were desperate for cash. They might well have been or they might well have wanted the money, but they were about to go into the Champions League and it didn't seem as if they were they were destitute. And when it came to the end of the window and when it came to the period where it, it was clear that Rafinha was probably going to go and was, was very interested in the move to Leeds or to the Premier League or whatever else, there didn't seem to be much resistance to the offers for him. And, and I think... With hindsight, it seems to me that you look at the the fee of seventy million pounds, and you feel that he was probably fairly underpriced in a, in an era where players are going for for very big money. And I know a couple of journalists who write about Ren and have been helpful with with pieces um, over the past um, year or so about Rafinha, and they are all very resistant to the idea. Strangely, so I think that Ren made a mistake with this. They they kind of feel that. Rafinha wanted to go to the Premier League. Rafinha wasn't always that influential at Rennes. He didn't always make the sort of impact he should have done. It was good money. It was seen as good value, even though they'd basically paid the same, if not slightly more, to, to Sporting in Portugal for him. And it, it I, I always think to myself, if the, the boot's on the other foot and Leeds had sold Rafinha for £70 million to Liverpool, say, and he was doing what he's doing at Leeds, 
at Liverpool, at Anfield, in the Champions League, in the Premier League. Everybody around here would be saying that was a terrible deal. Like £70 million for him was absolutely ridiculous. But Ren don't seem to have, don't seem to feel like that. And I don't think I'll ever really understand why. Denial. It can only be, it can <laughs> it, only be it, denial. It feels a little bit like it. I mean, maybe it's just not a big deal to them. Maybe they just don't, they don't see it like that. But as I say, I can't imagine if Rafinha was tearing it up at another club at the moment and Leeds have got £70 million for him, I don't think you two would be sitting saying, well, you know, it's just that's, that's just football. And I don't think I'd be writing that either. I think I would be saying, what, what on earth was that about? I mean, we don't want to sell him before we've fully enjoyed him, do we? No. But there is, that is very, very true in that I think deep down there is an acceptance that if we sell him for an absolute boatload of money at some stage in the next 6, 12, 18 months, whenever it might be, that we'd probably be all right with that as long as it goes back into rebuilding the side um, as a whole and hopefully we can unearth the next Rafinha, that there's a there's an understanding, I think, about that. Yeah, and, and to be objective about this, people have seen the quotes from Deco in a global um, newspaper, I think it was, down in Brazil, where Deco is agent, and it was Deco who kind of phoned Leeds last minute to say, look, he is for sale if you want him. Yes, please, and, and the deal was done. Deco basically said, look, he's going to move on. He's going <laughs> to have to move on because... Stop he, talking, he, Deco. He, yeah, well, that's what, that's what it was like. You're reading this, you, you think, maybe just be a bit more diplomatic about this um, but it was in maybe not quite as many words saying he, he will need to go to, to a bigger club and I just hope that won't be too soon and I hope Leeds will have good use of him I think more and more I, I sort of think to myself what Leeds have to do in managing him and, and handling him is to make sure that if the day comes where they feel compelled to sell that they, they do it on their terms and they maximise his value because they really should you know they should really eke out every single penny any club should with the, with a player like that, and they should also know a hundred percent what they're going to do with the cash when it lands. You know that needs to go on in the background as it should with any player like that. In the same way as Villa tried to do with Grealish, you know you have to have to think like that. But despite what Deck was saying, I, I don't get any sense of Rafinha agitating to move on. I don't get any sense of him feeling like this is doing him any harm. He, he seems to be seems to be happy here. He's definitely thriving here, no question about it. And. I'd love to think that we'll get another few seasons out of him. I don't feel like we will, but I, I'd love to think there'd be, you know, maybe at least one more in him. Just going back to Wren, they sold him at that low price because I think that if they took any more money for him, they had to pay a, a big chunk of that to Sporting, didn't they? That's part of the reason why they, they, they got rid of that time. If memory serves me right, I think that is correct, but it still feels as if he was pretty undervalued at £70 million. Pounds. Um, I, I don't think that... I don't think that will come to be seen as particularly good business and certainly Ren have not been have not flown since he went but I mean what do Leeds care it was the right sort of fee the right amount of money that they were looking to pay in that window they weren't limiting their expenditure but they weren't able to stray into the bracket of 40, 50, 60 million pound signings Rafinha at 70 million pounds they knew could be very very good and very good value for money And, and I honestly feel like since his debut against Arsenal He's very rarely had, had a game where he's made no impact. Very rarely had a game. That, again, to go back to Gelhart, and I don't really know why I'm, I'm conflating the two, but the piece we wrote about Gelhart last week, someone I spoke to said, even when he had poor games, he always did something that made an impression on you. So scouts would go and watch him and he could play fairly badly, but they'd go thinking, oh, that was amazing though. That, you know, that was lovely bit of a lovely bit of touch, a lovely bit of skill, lovely goal from him in amongst, you know, a, a bit of mediocrity. And overall, the picture builds up to, to paint somebody pretty special. And that's what I feel we're, we're seeing with Rafinha. I don't want to paint Leeds at all as a one-man team at the moment, but I think there is one player who is shining in that squad far above everybody else. And from a fan perspective, I mean, despite what Deco might say, and I think we all deep down know the nature of, of modern day football and Agents drive in it and, you know, players move clubs. There's very little loyalty. You don't get, you know, one club players anymore, very rarely. Despite all that, like you look at the comments that Rafinha made on Instagram, you know, the little dig at Tim Krul, which was great fun, by the way, and how much the fans enjoyed that. There's just that little sense that he really likes it here and he gets it. I think he does. I think he does. I don't know who told him about that, but somebody obviously told him about that. This goes back, if if anybody's forgotten, to the game that Norwich won at Ellen Road in Bielsa's first season. And, you know, let's get it right. Norwich were by far the better team on the on the night, deserved to win and ultimately deserved to win the, the title as well. And Krull had a pop afterwards saying, you know, there's all this talk about Leeds, but they're not Barcelona, they're just Leeds and, and we've beaten them. There are enough players here who were here during that season as well 
who evidently have not forgotten about that. And he is quite an abrasive character from what I'm told, Cruel. So there's always a little bit of niggle there. And somebody's clearly had a word in Rafinha's ear at some point and said, listen, this is what went on, just so so you're aware. Because that was incredibly random, that appearing on Instagram. I, I Someone um, messaged me to say, have you seen this? I had a look and I thought, on, on the one hand, that's very, very odd. But on the other, you can see what's going on. Somebody has obviously said to him, listen, if you get a chance to have a little dig, feel free. <laughs> One thing I think about Rafinha in particular is he's really reignited a lot of joy in me. I just like watching him play football. He just makes things happen. He's the sort of footballer you want to pay money to go and watch. I think that's the, when you were saying about unbalancing players. There is a joy, even if it comes to nothing in the game. There is a joy about seeing a fullback on his backside, scrambling around, trying to get a foot on something because he's been twisted so much. And we've not had anyone who does that for a while, I don't feel. that can I... It's the humiliation, essentially, is what you is what you is what you're there to enjoy. It's like I want to see you completely destroy that fullback for the entire game. I want I want to see him trying to kick you and missing because he's that he's that far behind. Do you remember this with Delph when he came into the team? He'd obviously been in the academy. And McAllister had started talking about him a little bit, but nobody, unless you watched the the twenty threes or the twenty ones, it was reserves back then, really closely. And actually, I remember saying to somebody watching the reserves really closely. It never shone out from Delph in the same way as it did in the first team. But when he came into the team, particularly because it was in League One, he would do things that you would just sit there and think, nobody else in this division is doing that. That's that, that's extraordinary. And obviously there are players in the Premier League who are doing much of what Rafinha is doing. If you look at somebody like Salah, there are people who are doing it better. Uh, but he, you're right. I mean, he's worth the, worth the admission fee. So here's to you, Rafinha. Thanks for making it fun again. Yeah, very much so. Although... It was not that it wasn't fun beforehand, was it? It's been well, it's been a fun three years, don't you think? In retrospect, it's been a fun three years, but right up until probably Pablo scoring at Swansea, it was a nightmare. And even then, we still had Barnsley afterwards. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But some of what Hernandez used to do, you know, those nutmegs from like 10 yards away and, and the kind of blind passes that just fell perfectly. It was, it was to blame. But I suppose you're right. It was all wrapped up in the utter tension of is this leading to anything whereas for a lot of last season by the time Rafinha got going last season and by the time Bielsa properly let him loose Leeds were kind of well on the way to being safe you know they, were, they had good impetus and the points were were building up so you're probably right you were able to just see the fun side of it without stressing too much about what was going on on the day and, and what was going on with that with your result and, and results elsewhere but Michael's spot on. There haven't been that many players at Leeds who can mug Gary Cahill in the way that Rafinha did. I mean, that was that was exceptional. And a Brazilian always gets the pulses racing. And you contrast with our history of Brazilians, uh, Roque Jr. and Adrian. I think Rafinha's all right. I am. Um, I got in touch with a journalist called Martin Fernandes, who is a columnist for O Globo in in Brazil, just to ask him what the reaction had been to Rafinha, because clearly Rafinha's last. Inter- spell of international games which were his first um, but he, he had been called up previously was a sensation and he said to me Rafinha is everywhere here he said he's everywhere he's, he's come to the squad and he's settled in in a way where he's been respectful to the fact that there are bigger names in it and bigger players but has been confident in the sense that he doesn't look overawed at all he just seems to fit and seems to fit very comfortably and there has according to, to Martin that there has been a bit of a ground spell in Brazil prior to you know this this period of internationals for him to get a call up because people have been aware of of what he's been doing at Leeds and and doing in the Premier League, and I I think a little bit like Phillips with England. I suspect he's set for a good while now. Um, I think he'll be in this squad indefinitely, and I think if he if he plays well enough and and he continues to play like he has, then I think he'll be going to the World Cup, no doubt. There's only one thing for it, isn't there? We're going to have to sign more Brazilians to keep him at Leeds. So let's start off with Neymar, just for you. Start off a ten. I was on the Athletic podcast with um, Mark Chapman earlier this week and he asked me the question of why it is, and he was a bit confused by this, he said, I, I don't understand why it is that Bielsa is never linked with big jobs. You know, why when big jobs come up? or He's, big, he's in a big job. Well, yeah, there you go. You can you can pick that fight. <laughs> but why when the biggest jobs come up, does nobody want to, does nobody think about going for Bielsa? And I said to him, I think there are two reasons for that. The first is, Bielsa is so intensely loyal that I don't think you'd be able to talk him out of his contract at Leeds. I think that would be extremely difficult. The other thing is, I don't think he would fit at a lot of clubs because a lot of clubs have very egotistical boards or owners or directors, far more so than than at Leeds. 
A lot of clubs would not give him anything like the autonomy that he has at Leeds, which he definitely needs. And a lot of clubs would just not be able to tolerate his idiosyncrasies. You know, they, they wouldn't like it. And, and likewise, Bielsa would not like the ownership structure at, at a lot of clubs. And the idea of him and Neymar, I mean, I, I, the, thing that, the thing that came into my head was when Messi moved from Barcelona to PSG, how many under-23s games would he have had at PSG before making, <laughs> making his debut? And what you find with Rafinha is that he's very, very easy to, to manage. Bielsa said this a couple of weeks ago, that he is a special player, but he's not a special player who thinks that that means he should get special treatment or be able to do what he likes on, on the pitch. He understands that he's just part of, the, part of the machine. And I think that's another reason why he's so good. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Third and final part of uh, episode 100 of the Phil Hay Show. Amazing. Thanks to everybody who's listened. Thank you as well for my Iron Brew, which has turned up today, which must be for the special occasion. Does this explain, as we were discussing last week, why it is that when I watch the videos of your podcast, Normanton suddenly looks like he's got biceps? (laughs) Suddenly? What do you mean? Well, I come in here in the flesh and it's it's Primark man. And then I watch on the video and it's Iron Brew man. That must be it. No, the girl, pre- the girl does. We'd love to pretend the Iron Brew was bought specially for you, but it's probably just because it was on offer because that's what Michael's like. It also has no sugar in it, so next time. Trying to think your health, Phil. Uh, okay, on to Leicester at the weekend. And a, a club that I just can't figure out. I don't know what's happened to Leicester. Uh, we chatted about this on the Square Ball podcast saying we just don't know what to expect because they've played same number of games as us. Obviously, they've done 10, but they've won four. They've lost four, two draws. Slightly negative goal difference. Sat just about dead middle of the table. Mixed. The one, the one thing that is happening there that always happens and seems like it's going to happen for the next 60 years is that Vardy is scoring goals. They keep talking about how they're going to move on from Vardy and what the sort of inheritance process is, is going to be there, but he just looks like he will, he'll never, never end. I, I, I've been reading some of the coverage by a Leicester writer, Rob Tanner, and the, the view seems to be that they're kind of less direct, they're moving the ball more slowly not kind of dominating territory in, in the same way that they were before. They're mixing between formations. They're also having to juggle the Europa League, which obviously does tend to have a, a slight impact on, on results. But they were very, very close to Champions League qualification last season. Obviously, FA Cup winners. It's been, it, has been, it has been mixed. I still think they're a really good team, though. I still think they've got a lot of good players. It always happens, though, doesn't it, when they try and come up with new formulas and new plans. Like when plan A goes out the window and they try and evolve into a new style or whatever, it can cause a little bit of disruption in terms of results and, and output. Maybe they're just at that stage, like in the same way Leeds, we've been saying about Leeds being in a transitional phase. Maybe they are as well, trying to move on from that post sort of, you know, they won the title, they had the little honeymoon period afterwards, bit of Champions League qualification, and now they're kind of finding out what's next. 
It must be awful for them just having to win the FA Cup. Terrible, isn't I'd it? I'd hate it. Yeah, grim and, and being on the, the fringes of the Champions League. They're probably trying to find ways to take that step into Champions League contention and, and top four contention. But the problem we have is that even though they were so well placed last summer, what happens? Chelsea do Lukaku, City do Jack Grealish, which I don't think has kind of quite worked so far. And they're still badly lacking a centre forward, but that is on top of a quality, quality squad. Liverpool have clicked back into gear. Manchester United could be a hell of a lot better than they are, but are still forking out on Varane and Cristiano Ronaldo. You get stuck, I guess, in this cul-de-sac of knowing that you've done a lot of good things. So Leicester have this amazing new training ground and they've invested, to my mind, money in all the right areas. They've got a really, really good manager, Brendan Rodgers. They've got a very good squad, I feel, with lots of players in it. But it's not an elite squad. You know, it's not a, it's not a squad that is going to challenge for the title again, barring something, you know, freakish going on. So where do you go from there? I mean, I wonder if that thought's in Brendan Rodgers' head, really. What, you know, what feasibly can he do with Leicester that he hasn't done already? Because they, they've been at a very high watermark for a long time. We've seen a few question marks about him this season, saying has he taken them as far as he can? Do you think there's any truth in that? Is it just, do some managers just reach the end of the line and need to have a change, do something different? I don't know whether it's necessarily him that needs a change, as in Leicester can't go any further because he's manager and he's done as much as he can. I, I, I just wonder if Leicester are hitting the ceiling and there is a very, very thick ceiling in the Premier League at that, that part of the division that they're trying to, to compete in. I think there's probably more of, of a question mark around Rodgers because if you are Newcastle with very rich Saudi owners, he is surely a pretty good fit or the sort of person you should be going for. He must kind of feel, having kind of climbed back up again from it not going so well at Liverpool, that perhaps he is due or, or would like to have another crack at a really big position. I think he would do a far better job at Old Trafford than Solskjaer is doing, as an example. But yeah, I, I don't know. They're they clearly not having a great time. You could almost you could almost say that there's similarities between Leeds and Leicester in that sense, and that Leeds have had a very good period and, and a lot of good years under Bielsa and then it's got a bit difficult and it's not not quite so easy. So naturally people start to ask if it's stopped working or if it's not not happening. I still reckon Leicester will be very much in the mix for Europa League places and I think they are good enough as well to, to go quite far in the Europa League if they play well. All that said then, what are we going to face on Sunday? Well, I couldn't even guess the formation because they tend to switch around quite a lot. I actually thought one of the best performances last season was against Leicester away at the King Power. It was really clever in the second half. Lo- loads of common sense, actually, in one of the rare occasions where you kind of saw Leeds realise that Leicester were dominating, Leicester were having the ball. So they sat in and they kept it tight and caught them on the break, which is exactly the right thing to do. Less so at Ellen Road, where it all got very messy. And that was obviously Hernandez's bad night back in November. They can play with a lot of pace. I think they will have Madison and, and um, Harvey Barnes fit. They've both been suffering from illness, but from what I was reading earlier today, they, they could both be uh, both be available. I think for Leeds, if Leicester go three at the back, which they might, you would hope that if Leeds can walk the space and, and play in the way that they need to, that they can, again, find gaps for Rafinha down the right, you'll take advantage in that sense. But they will have to defend extremely well against Leicester. And the, the problem against Leicester, and you'll remember that Vardy didn't play in the game at the King Power, is that if you serve them up chances and if you serve him up chances, he, he just sticks them away. It's, it's that simple. I mean, we concede chances. That's a truth as well. Yes, but then again, always have. And this was part of the thing about Liam Cooper earlier in the week. For all the focus on Cooper, I think the bigger issue for Leeds by a mile is at the other end of the pitch. Mm. I think that what what's going on at the back is not, you know, like the header from the corner against Norwich. It's not as if we've not seen that before. But Leeds do tend to be far, or have been, far more creative, far more dangerous going forward than, than they are. And the statistics show that really clearly. There's no doubt about it. Bielsa talks about it. He can he can see it too. So yeah, they, they probably will give chances away, but they need to minimise them. And they need to make sure that they're not soft. I think Leicester, Leicester creates some very, very good goals, which you can kind of hold your hands up, hands up to. But don't be giving them gimmies like Wolves got early on. So an interesting stat through the week, it was Nick Harris, who's at Sporting Intel on mm. Twitter, says he's, he's worked out. Essentially, a goal in the Premier League equates to a point or thereabouts when you shake it all down at the end of the season. So if you score 50 goals, generally you'll get 50 points. just seems to work out that way. And you know, leading from that is the question of this problem with Leeds' attacking. Do you think that that is where 
Leeds need to improve is actually up front rather than at the back. And is there any chance of seeing Bamford? Uh, question one, yes, need to improve up front. I think more than, than anywhere else in the pitch. Although I, I think part of the problem there is that the midfield is not really functioning as it needs to. So obviously that that doesn't help. Bamford, I think, I said this last week, I think half a chance, although Bielsa is speaking tomorrow and it'll, it'll be down to him to decide. Is, you know, it's, it's one thing, the general attitude being, yeah, he's fit and yeah, he's ready. But you would have said that about Rafinha at Southampton and obviously wasn't in the squad. And again, there have been games with Phillips where he's been there and he's been ready or he's been potentially ready, but Bielsa has chosen not to, to use him. Bamford, I think, is getting really close. I think he's getting really close now. Firpo should be fine. He obviously didn't didn't play down at Norwich, um, but he was in the 23s last weekend and I haven't heard of, of any injury issues with him. I think, he'll, I think he should be okay. Ailing potentially a little bit further behind, but I'm stabbing in the dark slightly here. Um, yeah, we are ahead of Bielsa, aren't we? Yes, he's he's yeah. talking Friday as yes. we record this. Yeah, um, I've started to feel that Bamford and Ailing will be, will be key coming back, not just because of the way they play, but I think when you look at it, you, you're talking about two of the bigger characters in the team there. And Again, this is that kind of situation where you really, really need them. Really need them. Ailing in particular, they always say with Cooper that he's an excellent captain without being a sort of classic captain as in loud and brash and, you know, shouting about everything. Ailing is far more vocal and is far more the voice around the place. You know, you, you get a lot out of him. And I remember Ailing being incredibly good and incredibly influential in that key period where they needed to recover from Forrest um, in the promotion season. Scored a lot of goals, played very, very well. That you know, that could make a that could make a big difference, those two coming back. But whether they'll be fit for this weekend, I honestly don't know. Um question mark then about midfield, and if you think maybe it's midfield where things are falling down in terms of making the attack function. What about Forshaw? Where does he sit in this? I think Forshaw's been okay actually since he's come back. I do think he's been decent enough and I can see in his game ways in which he would make a difference to the team. I mean I suppose there has to come a time where he's fit enough to start and there has to come a time where he's he's ready to be to be given that chance I think again it was it was three at the back at Norwich which never feels to me like it gives Leeds the, the kind of dominance in the middle that, that they really need unless they have at times this season played two up front so it's hard to know exactly how they'll go at the weekend but a lot of the way Bielsa plays relies on turn over ball and nicking the ball from the opposition and particularly nicking it in, in areas where you can suddenly go through transition and, and cause trouble and, and create chances and, and score goals quickly. The other thing I think about though, when I, particularly in the Championship and in periods of the Premier League last season, when I think of Bielsa's team, is how much they tended to play beyond halfway, how much they tended to camp beyond halfway, to sit with a, a very, very high line. Hasn't really felt like that this season. I don't know if that's just something I'm kind of feeling or seeing with the naked eye or, and whether that's actually accurate. But they they don't feel to me like they're able to to push on in the way that, that he really likes them to. I don't think they're a million miles off. I have to say, I, I do think that in most games, you've seen periods, and this was true at Norwich, you've seen periods where actually it starts to come together and the old confidence is there. But it might be, because there just isn't kind of that balance in midfield at the moment, that might be what's holding them back from a, a proper full-on 90-minute performance, which I think they're going to need against Leicester. And if we get it, do you think it can propel us onto to a win? I think it's within within us. Don't you agree? I mean, I, on, over on our show, I sort of said, I'm... Um, Virgin towards soft win, draw to soft win. I think is how I feel about this one at the minute. It feels like there'll have to be a, a very major improvement on the Norwich performance. I think because yeah. if we if we turn them and play the same way, then Leicester have the players to punish us, and in a way that Norwich just didn't. We were able to be sloppy against them, and it didn't actually matter. But I, I see parallels with the Everton game in this one, and I thought we played all right against Everton. It's within us to to get these performances out. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd very much be going draw for this one. Um, I don't think they're in spectacular form. Leeds certainly aren't either. I think it could be a very good game, but I think it will be close. I think it will be tight. It's not that I don't think Leeds have it in them to beat Leicester, but when I start thinking through Leicester's better players like Vardy and, and Madison and, and Barnes, it kind of reminds me of how good they can be if it clicks. So you're right. I think Leeds do have it in them to win this, but I'm I'm expecting a point. And is a point a good return? Because I'm just looking at the other fixtures um, from the weekend. We've got Chelsea facing Burnley and then Brighton against Newcastle. You'd expect both Newcastle and Burnley to lose those on balance, wouldn't you? I think irrespective of that, you would say that a point against Leicester is a good result per se with them in, with them as as they are. I mean, obviously they, they play tonight against Sparta at Moscow, but they are at home, so they don't, um, they don't have to travel. I wouldn't have thought recovery will be, be a big deal for them. 
games against Leicester, games against Tottenham, those sort of fixtures, you take what, what you can get. And I think there were periods of last season that probably lulled everybody into thinking that, oh, you know, we can we can turn Spurs over because Spurs came to Ellen Road and were pretty comprehensively outplayed. But at that point, it had all gone sour under Mourinho. They, you know, that Ryan Mason was um, looking after them. They've got Conte now. Um, and you would have thought Conte with a game in a few weeks, um, a couple of weeks of international break to, to properly get into them is going to create a, a different beast on the other side of it. So, yeah, a point against Leicester would be a very, very good point irrespective of what's going on for other clubs. I'd take a draw as well. Mm-hmm. I think I'd take a draw, but I just I like to veer on the side of optimism and, and just hope that our performances will continue to incrementally increase. And I think this squad is better than it's showing, that's all. Um, I just hope we've got that performance in us that we can dig one out and... Uh, and maybe surprise everybody a little bit. Incremental increase is a really good phrase. That That's how I feel it's going. It's kind of getting better. It's getting be- better gradually and slowly. And it's not as if you feel them leaping from kind of mediocre performances to, to startling performances. But it might just be coming. And, and as I say, if there was one good thing about Norwich, apart from the result, it was coming away thinking Leeds are considerably better than them. They are completely and utterly awful. Fingers crossed then for three points on Sunday. We'll reconvene next week and see whether we were right. Draws all round. I think that was the sort of general vibe, wasn't it? I'm yeah. going to get on a Norwich win now, Phil said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the Phil Hay Show on Twitter, if you want to say hi, by the way, and you can subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, 33% discount. We'll chat to you next week. The Phil Hay Show.